0: We have a very special guest.
1: Yes, we have Dr. Julie Levy back with us. Yes, thank you. It's and great be here. Yeah.
0: And you know, uh, Julie, we, end we left up at with a cliffhanger. A cliffhanger again. And we <laughs> tend
1: to do that lately. Yeah? I know. This we,
0: is the second we, one yeah, already. Yeah, so.
1: we've just by accident been stopping at Cliffhangers. I
2: know. Sorry for saying. Sorry, Media presents the PER Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi,
1: this is Dr. Susan Little.
0: And this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. And I'm so happy that you started, Susan, because I know. this is number two of really the Susan Little show. <laughs>
1: You talked in the first episode. I did, I did. You
0: did talk. I I talked to you a little bit of my background. That I had one of my favorite professors in the world, Dr. Marjan Horsinek, uh, as my virology teacher. And
1: I'm very jealous about that. He was such a gentleman, too.
0: He was a gentleman, and he was a wonderful teacher. And he really enticed me to love virology and Aww. which is interesting because I'm a surgeon and I have nothing to do with viruses in my life yeah. except for catching one of them now and then when I get the flu but that's it so yeah. uh, and that's why I vaccinated myself <laughs> against the flu but uh, we have a very special guest
1: yes we have Dr. Julie Levy back with us
0: yes thank you it's and this great is to part be here and you know uh, Julie we, we ended up with a cliffhanger. a cliffhanger again and we <laughs> tend to do that lately yeah, I know this is the we've, second one yeah,
1: already yeah so. we've just accident than stopping at cliffhangers. I know.
0: It was about the, the the amazing two tests or that you or three tests that you do now. And the question was are we doing it on whole blood? Are we doing it on serum or plasma? And we're talking of course about feeling leukemia and FIV
1: testing. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of left off with Julie was talking about um, the uh, project that um, you're doing with Austin Pets Alive, with which is a long-term study. That's never really been done before like that, right? Like longitudinally following cats out very far, right?
3: There really hasn't no. been with the retroviruses. Most of what we know about the retroviruses are based on laboratory infected cats that are using specific laboratory yeah. strains. Mm-hmm. And so we ought to be a little bit cautious about what we learn from those artificial circumstances. The reason we don't have long-term follow-up of naturally infected cats is really hard work to do. Yeah. It's expensive. It's it's hard to keep track of them. People move with these cats. So we feel very grateful that Maddie's Fund and the Wind Feline Foundation and Austin Pets Alive have come together to make this long-term project possible for the first time. It's Something we've wanted to do for a very long mm-hmm. time. And the, the time is right. Partly sparked by the changes in shelter culture yeah. where shelters are trying to save all of the cats that are not suffering or are not dangerous. And so we're digging down now into these more vulnerable populations like the ones that have retroviruses.
1: Yeah, euthanasia as a population control tool is, is not acceptable. You know, and increasingly the
3: public feels like that, right? Yeah, we're getting a strong message from the public. Yeah. They want to save animals that can be saved and to re- reserve euthanasia as a, a humane end of an animal's life. And um, because there's been so much success with spay and neuter and population control and adoptions, uh, we're really digging down now into those populations that didn't have a chance before.
1: Yeah, so we kind of left off talking about... Um, the long-term project following the FELV infected cats with um, Austin Pets Alive. And Julie was describing this huge study that they were doing where they did like every possible FELV test and did them um, not just each test, but like on blood and on, on serum plasma, we kind of left off at the point mm-hmm. where like, what what is the best sample, yes. right? Yes. Yes, so,
3: we're
0: excited. Yes. All right. What's so, the okay. answer? Drum roll. Yes. <laughs> yes.
3: So we uh, were able to answer this question because we have had a lot of debate about yeah. what does it mean if you test on whole blood and it's a weak positive and yeah. then you s- Spin it down to serum and you get a negative. And I think traditionally, for some reason, the culture has been that that probably that was a false positive and that the the serum is a more accurate sample. But we've been able to determine now that that whole blood positive actually was the right answer. And we can do that because now we have PCR, which is a very sensitive test and we can detect very low amounts of virus by PCR. What we also can see though, is those really weak positives do seem to reflect that it is a low level of virus in the cat, which is more consistent with the regressive infections and a better prognosis. So those mm. cats are less likely to get sick or to shed viruses from the other cats, but they are infected. So yeah. can I ask a question about that? Because sure. now I'm
0: going back to virology yeah. and the background behind this. Is this because it's a specific virus that you see in cell nuclei for instance more commonly and that's why whole blood is more sensitive than if you do plasma
3: so you're very close oh, you would have gotten <laughs> partial credit <laughs> from your you professor see. yes if you were in julie's class she yeah. would have given you a partial credit, oh, okay. credit. so the the p27 antigen which is what we detect on our yeah. point of care tests in the micro titer plates test, it's a soluble antigen, so it's just free in the liquid compartment of the blood. And it is also found in the cytoplasm of cells, which is why we can see it on the IFA. So the blood smear that we use for the IFA, those infected cells will have a bright green cytoplasm. However, the the viral antigens also will adhere to the outside of the red blood cells. This happens in HIV as well. So we know it's a real phenomenon because it's been well documented in human medicine. So when you remove the cellular component with those externally adhered virus particles, you actually reduce the sensitivity of the sample. So not surprisingly, whole blood with all of the cells in it is going to be most sensitive. If we remove most of those cells by spinning down the whole blood into plasma plasma is not a cell-free mm-hmm. fluid there's still some platelets yeah. and some of the white blood cells in there and so Plasma is second in sensitivity. And then serum, which really does have all of the cellular components removed, is gonna be the least sensitive of the three. And that's
1: really big news because that debate has been raging forever, right? Yeah. And I've you know, i seen um, clinics and veterinarians say, we don't use whole blood anymore because we get so many false results. Yeah. And Wasn't there a time period where we were saying, oh, if the cat eats mice, do you remember that debate?
3: Well, yeah. and there, there was yeah. a time with the early tests yeah. uh, that because the reagents for these tests are, are often mouth spinoclonal clonal antibodies. Mm, yeah. and, and if cats had had exposure, they might have some natural anti-mouse antibodies. Yeah. So in the early generations yeah. of tests, that was a real source yeah. of false positives. Now the the tests have been improved and those are no longer yeah. a conflict. No, it's not mice anymore. No. no. no the no,
0: mice no. are free. Yeah. They yeah. have been acquitted. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. So
1: that really clarifies things so nicely, which is good news. So uh, here's the thing I want to ask you, because I've been asked this question before. So if I can do um, whole blood on a point of care test in my clinic, um, or I can do the, the ELISA or the micro microwell plate at the lab, Should which is better? And then sometimes it's just a convenience thing, right? Because, you know, we're running a bunch of other tests on the CAD and it's going out to the referral lab anyway. So let's just add on an FELD, FID test, right? So,
3: so they're almost equivalent. Mm-hmm. So that we didn't, we occasionally saw a CAD that would be positive, Weekly on whole blood and the negative mm. on the plasma because that plate test is going to be run plasma. on plasma. And you know, I think a lot of vets don't know that. No, they, they yeah. wouldn't. Yeah, it wouldn't be a reason. So you might miss a a low number of weak positive cats by going straight to the plate test in the lab and. The thing that most veterinarians don't have a way of knowing is even knowing what your lab runs when yeah. when they add a, a felu test onto the chemistry panel um, or geriatric screen, you just get FELV antigen back, right? You don't know if no. there was a snap test or a yeah. uh, plate test. And so it, it's worth talking to your lab to find out exactly what they do. And to be honest, it's not always the same. If, if they are running a small batch of tests one night, they might be pulling out a point of care test just like the one that you would have run or they might be putting a larger volume of tests on their plate reader see that's something that i never knew
0: no and 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 from a global perspective uh, do all labs have this technology or is there variation also in the world
3: yeah variation for sure there are variation even within like North America, where we have several major labs, they will use um, different brands of tests and have different testing protocols. And then when we move outside of this continent, all of the the laboratories that are available in other countries will have their own set of protocols and tests that they use. And they might not even, they might use tests that are not licensed even in the US. So they are tests we don't even know about.
1: Yeah. And that's an important point because some of the work you've done has looked
3: at the point of care tests and they're not
1: all even, they're not all the same. We have to be really careful about extrapolating results that were, I guess, developed with like certain tests.
3: That That is a very important point, yeah. Susan. And we do not have very much literature that lines up all of the available tests, yeah. uses the same sample yeah. and runs them all side by side, which is really what we need to be able to compare them. Yeah. In most cases, we'll have a set of samples that are characterized by some third, third uh, way of mm-hmm. deciding what their gold standard is mm-hmm. and then maybe two or three tests will be compared but in another study there will be a different gold standard and a different three tests will be done so even though there's a fair number of papers that try to assess test accuracy it's very hard to line them all up and make a big summary statement about them
1: yeah so i mean like this the, the- study that, that you're doing right now, I've never seen anything like that. Nobody's been brave enough <laughs>
3: <laughs> or had enough funding or, you know. True enough, but yeah. we did focus mostly, you know, to be completely transparent, yeah. mostly on IDEX tests. Our yeah. IFA was done by the National Veterinary Lab in New Jersey, which is the laboratory that developed that test, the first FeLV test in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and is still the only test, the only lab that I will use if yeah. I want to mm. run an IFA. But I have also become... Um, kind of infatuated with IDEX test for point of care tests and for PCR. And currently they're the only ones that have the quantitative PCR.
1: Yeah. And they're um, not, the other thing is that not a lot of these tests have been kind of independently evaluated either. Right. It's always Mm -hmm. nice to see that.
0: So if you don't live in the U S or Canada, um, talk to your lab See what test they're using, um, but then I can understand that probably not every veterinarian understands what yeah. the test says. So where where could they find an information for you know what is the best test to use?
3: So I think starting with the new guidelines, there's mm-hmm. twenty six pages of fine print, oh, a <laughs> um, hundred or more references <laughs> to back it up, and it is. It is compiled by an international group okay. of experts in this field. Mm. So we took all of the combined brain power of folks who are currently doing research and tried to distill it into um, uh, not quite so concise encyclopedic uh, <laughs> review so I, I would start there but then i would also look to who is the expert in your region so yeah. you know in germany we would contact katrin hartman and ask okay. her what the, her opinion is because she's going to have her finger on the pulse of mm. best practices in her region yeah
0: so reach out to your local <laughs> expert yeah. uh, to help you a little bit with choosing the right test or maybe the right lab even uh for the same issue uh, yeah so, and okay. it's also
1: fair you know we should point out that in in Europe, there is a wonderful group called the Advisory Advisory Board on Cat Diseases, if I got it right. Mm-hmm. ABCD. ABCD, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I can not always put the words to the letters, but <laughs> Advisory Board on Cat Diseases.
0: And which was started yeah. by Marianne Horsenick. There you go. Uh-huh. There mm-hmm. we Absolutely. go. Absolutely.
1: And they have um, a website with, uh, I think, every feline infectious disease known
3: to veterinary medicine. It's very I never comprehensive. I know. Yeah. They, they really um, go into. Uh, a, lot a litany of, of, of infectious diseases and they're very practice-oriented, really good, concise descriptions, not only of what the diseases look like, but then how to diagnose and treat them as well.
1: Yeah. And so they have some...
3: Uh, feline leukemia
1: and FIV information there that would be I think a little bit more European centric probably mm-hmm. so that's where I'd send somebody from Europe.
0: And we'll put the link in
1: yeah well because we I will.
0: think that's a great, uh, yes. they're a great resource. Yeah
1: so. and, and the other good thing is that that's all available for free mm-hmm. so you don't have to be a member of anything to access their information and our new uh, <clears throat> guidelines that are out are uh, from uh, the American Association of Feline Practitioners and we make them available for free so you don't have to be a member. So.
0: And where can you Find them
1: there? Yeah. So we'll put a link in the show notes, mm-hmm. but um, AFP keeps all of its guidelines at catvets.com. Okay. And when you go to catvets.com, you'll see a link for practice guidelines. And so uh, we've got vaccination guidelines there. Julie and I are survivors of the. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
2: what
1: I, that's what I call us now. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah,
0: survivors. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: survivors. Well, anybody who's worked on a guidelines group, I think, feels like a survivor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really quite an intellectual challenge to do, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, it's an exercise in consensus building, right? Yeah, so we we survived the vaccine guidelines,
0: <laughs> and now <the laughs> yeah. retrovirus.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. yes, and now retrovirus. Uh-huh. Wow, I feel like really gone through the fire. Yeah.
0: So, Julie, retrovirus viruses, what what is specific about them? What is why uh, why are they here? How did how did oh. they? become a issue. Oh. Yeah, so the yeah,
3: retroviruses are a very interesting group of viruses. They um, are transmitted as RNA and they actually have to reverse transcribe themselves into DNA. So there's a, always an enzyme called reverse transcriptase and when they have made a copy of themselves as DNA that then can integrate into the host cells and actually becomes part of the host. DNA. Like yeah. DNA it's is clinical. it's um it's very essence. So every cell then that is infected when it dies or when it dies when it uh, divides, those daughter cells are also infected. And so that is why they also, if you use their blood for transfusion, mm. you can transmit it during t- transfusion, and they they behave very differently they often cause um, immunosuppression in the case of the cat retroviruses they can because they integrate into the host genome they can be a stimulus for cancer to form because they disrupt cellular regulation and and division and um, in the case of fiv it is uh, cats do not recover from that infection they cannot eliminate it and luckily, they control it. So most of the cats with FIV live long, healthy lives. But very much like HIV, it's considered extremely rare to completely eliminate the virus and recover. The mm-hmm. FIV is, or FELV is more complex. We know that some cats do completely eliminate the virus. We call that abortive infection. And in Europe, they can actually run... FDLV antibody titers, and they can see that the clues that the virus used to be there. We don't have that testing available in the United States, so we probably don't recognize those cats very much Mm. because they had a very short positive time. The chances that that's when we tested them are pretty remote, so we would test them and they would be negative. Mm. And then we have the regressive infections in which a cat's immune system has worked very hard to suppress the virus and it can be very hard to detect, but it's still there in the cat. And if that cat becomes immunosuppressed for any reason or is stressed or has a concurrent condition, that virus can actually come back up and cause disease in that cat. And so we can actually see cats shift from Mm -hmm. a regressive stance to a progressive stance when they're more at risk for being infectious and for getting sick. Mm.
1: You know, it makes me wonder that two viruses are so different the way they work in the cat. It makes me wonder if FIV hasn't been in cats longer. Because after all, the virus doesn't want to kill the cat, right? right. The virus has one job in life, make more viruses. Mm. So it's good if you keep your host alive, right? right. So yeah. is that true or do
3: we know? I know I know that uh, the Steve O'Brien's group, oh, the yeah. great cat geneticists yeah. who work on wild cats globally, and they have done their magic and looking yeah. at genome sequences and have said that the FIV has been in cats for millennia. It's yeah. a very long uh, standing infection in cats. And and then that makes kind of some sense because generally when a virus jumps into a new host, it's uh, very pathogenic. And then eventually the virus attenuates a bit and the host de- develops some resistance. And so usually when viruses have been around a long time, they're not as pathogenic which is what we see in the cat now. Yeah. The cat lives with its lentivirus, FIV, better than people do with their newly emerged virus, HIV, which is more pathogenic in the absence of medication. With FELV, it's again a more complex story. There is an endogenous FELV that yes. all cat domestic cats have that uh, normally is not productive, but genetically it can be detected that they're, it, it arrives from a, my, a mouse originally. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, millennia ago. Yeah. And so I always felt like yeah. it's a little bit of the mouse revenge on cats. I yes, know. Is it's they gave that. them... Uh, it's the last laugh. The, the last laugh. <laughs> uh, but we don't we don't think it's pathogenic, or at least if it is, we don't understand it to be pathogenic. It's not infectious. And so they can be super infected with yeah. these, the FeLV that we know. Yeah.
1: Um, I know, I, I don't know if this is still true, but at one time we used to think sometimes that endogenous can can um, uh, be, become pathogenic when you get infected, right? Is that still, is that still something that we think about? So the,
3: it is believed and it has to do with uh, the recombination between yeah. the two viruses and depending on which segments of the gene of the endogenous retrovirus get recombined with the transmissible one and it can lead to strains of of B and C that are associated more with like the either anemia right? yes, yeah. or um, lymphoma. So mm-hmm. depending on how those combinations develop, you go down different roads for different diseases that we associate with FeLV. Mm-hmm.
0: And then cats that have both of the viruses.
3: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So we do see that. It's not common for cats to get both viruses because the risk factors are a little bit different. We see FIV transmitted mostly between big tom cats that fight, so big male cats outdoors. FELV spread uh, more um, equally to males and females from the um, mother cat to her kittens. But some cats will be at that, you know, edge of the bell-shaped curve and they're unlucky. And so they get both. In general, my experience with those cats is their outcome is predicted more by their FEOV mm-hmm. status. And that in some cases, we think the FIV may be a little bit additive. So it's mm. it's a little bit more of a a poor prognosis, but I haven't, I haven't felt like that group of cats did a whole lot more terrible than the be infected cats, and
0: if you look mm-hmm. at humans, so when we do the HIV, the immune suppression is mainly the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the same with cats? Then that you know when they get sick, it's because of the immune suppressive part of the disease, or is that especially in mm-hmm. FIV? Or
3: so in FIV, um, that that would be what we would see is we think that immune dysregulation, and in some cases, it's an overactive immune response. And in other cases, it's immune suppression. So when I would say that an example of the overactive dysregulation of immune response would be the stomatitis yeah. that the cats get. They are prone to get some inflammatory, chronic inflammatory conditions like that. Um, and then the immune suppressive conditions we might see with FIV would be their increased susceptibility to infections that are normally controlled by cell-mediated immunity, such as mm-hmm. toxoplasmosis mm-hmm. or some fungal infections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they tend to respond well to vaccination and yeah. you have other evidence of pretty robust immune function.
0: And obviously in people, they use a lot of antiviral products. Mm-hmm. So what about mm-hmm. those in cats? Mm-hmm.
3: So um, we have to take our hat off to Katrin Hartman yes. for, boy, really every time a new antiretroviral yeah. comes out, she, she gives tries it and good clinical trials. And she has shown some efficacy. So still AZT, the very first the AIDS drug, um, can, can help some cats, especially those with CNS disease with the virus. But it also causes bone marrow suppression. It's expensive. And so if these antiretrovirals really have not been found to be uh, very helpful for these cats the way they've been life-saving uh, in HIV. Even the cocktails, because I you know she's trying a number of cocktails. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if part of that Part of the issue,
1: of course, is they are two different viruses, right? But I also wonder if part of the issue is that we sometimes, especially these days, we might diagnose people earlier. I wonder if that's part of it, too.
3: You know, I don't know, right? Like, yeah, it, in HIV, they, these new cocktails um, did pull people back from the brink of death. So it so, doesn't matter. So, I mean, I'm sure early diagnosis is always preferred. Yeah, but even so. But they um they... Be, they reduce the chance of resistance um, occurring really early, which was the problem with monotherapy. And in people, they really track the amount of retroviral RNA that's in circulation because that indicates active infection. And so they will track both CD4 cell numbers and RNA counts. In cats with mm. FIV, actually, their RNA is usually not detectable anyway. Yeah. So there's nothing there to suppress. Mm. So I think that just because it's cats have learned to live with this virus, they're already sort of suppressing it themselves. Yeah. and. Adding a drug doesn't do doesn't a lot help. more. Yeah. So you you mentioned CD4. And so, what about looking at CD4, CD8 ratios? Yeah, we try to
1: borrow that idea. A big yeah. <laughs> part of
3: my uh, research as a graduate student yeah. in the 1990s was uh, lots of CD4 and CD8 ratios. Yeah. And um, what, you know, could we change that with drugs or could we predict um, yeah. when they would be susceptible to another infection? And that's another um, kind of interesting to follow, but it, in the end, it didn't really help you as a clinician decide what to do for them, You might just strike fear in your heart to see that they have no CD4 cells, but they actually still look really okay. good. So. Yeah. Like where are the CD4 cells? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's very true. So if cats can be different, they will be <laughs> yeah, and they're it's different in a good way with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. They are different in a good way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So some of, some of those things that, you know, we thought might work have kind of fallen by the wayside, but we really have some, um, much better understanding of how these viruses work especially FELV, and we have some tools now that we never had before so yeah
0: that's it, awesome yeah it's awesome. great ending of the show too oh, by no, the way we so have to end again. yeah because it's 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 time already but uh, so one more time where can we find those those guidelines
3: those guidelines can be found um, in the show notes and on the AAFP website yep. and Basically, any uh, Facebook page that we're on <laughs> right now, or, uh, <laughs> yeah, sharing these yeah. around. They're a really important advance. We're very proud of them. No, we
1: are very awesome. proud of them. Yes, I, awesome. I can finally say we're very proud. Yes, I kind yes. of cursed them for a while, but I'm over it. Now I'm really proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes.
0: You made history.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, I feel proud. So <laughs> yeah,
0: That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, yeah. This is the Per podcast. Uh, yeah. And where should people go?
1: Yeah, check us out at perpodcast.net. You can see a listing of all the show episodes there. So, you can see who our other guests have been. You can listen directly on our website, uh, but you'll also find us in your favorite uh, podcast app uh, like Spotify and, and uh, the um, Apple podcast app and and uh, others um and on social media we are
0: at per
1: podcast us mm-hmm.
0: a good review yeah. if you like the show yeah and uh we'll tell a friend s- yes tell a friend yeah and uh, thank
3: you so much for- great to be here
2: The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kurpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at perpodcast.